welcome back to Spooky October at Costume Drama Rewind. We're still your hosts, Megan Jutt and Laura Skog. Today's episode is The Crucible, based on the play by Arthur Miller, directed by Nicholas Hintner, came out in 1996, and it stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Winona Ryder, Charlene Woodard, Joan Allen, Bruce Davison, Peter Vaughn, Paul Schofield, and Rob Campbell. So the film starts with Winona Ryder, who plays Abigail Williams, and a bunch of other teenage girls sneaking out of their houses in Salem Village to meet up with Tichuba, played by Charlene Woodard, the enslaved housemaid of Reverend Paris, who is played by Bruce Davison. This gathering starts with the girls wanting Tichuba to conjure up the guys they dream of marrying, but Winona raises the stakes when she starts drinking the blood of a dead rooster. That escalated quickly. And calling upon the spirits or whatever for the death of villager John Proctor's wife. Totally chill. It's basically like girls gone wild with them dancing naked until Reverend Paris walks in on them. The next day, a couple of the youngest girls are in a catatonic state, and a lot of their family members and fellow villagers start thinking, it's witchcraft! They call in a minister from a nearby town, Reverend John Hale of Beverly, who specializes in diagnosing witchcraft. It's a pretty awesome job. And it appears that the girls try to save their skin by going into weird meltdowns and naming convenient suspects as witches, who are spectrally tormenting and forcing them to participate in satanic rituals. These suspects are largely poor, weird, and cranky old women, as well as various neighbors who are in land right disputes with the girls' families. Daniel Day-Lewis plays hero of the story, John Proctor, who had an affair with Abigail when she was one of his servants, and he's immediately skeptical about there being any witches afoot in Salem. Abigail originally tells him it was just them playing around in the woods, but then she starts laying her newfound importance as chief witch accuser and afflicted victim go to her head. Predictably, she accuses Proctor's wife Elizabeth of being a witch, even going so far as to have a friend plant evidence in the Proctor home. John confesses to the court about their affair, and he strong-arms his current servant Mary Warren into admitting the girls were making up everything. But this backfires very badly. Very badly. Very badly. And he's arrested as a witch himself. The girls are triumphant in their rise from ordinary servants churning butter and taking orders to wielding the power of life or death over their neighbors. They get front row seats at the executions. But as more people are accused and executed, the villagers start resenting and fearing them. Since one of the officials, Reverend Hale, doesn't believe her latest accusations, Abigail tries to accuse his wife of witchcraft, but apparently going after a preacher's wife crosses the line, and the judges tell her that this is not believable. She eventually breaks down and sneaks into the prison to try to get Proctor to flee the area with her. He refuses, and she runs away alone. Bye, <laughs> Some of the judges try to get Proctor to make a false confession so he can avoid execution, and they enlist his pregnant wife, who is also imprisoned, but has a reprieve from execution until she gives birth, to try to change his mind. He almost gives in, but he finally decides he, he can't sign his name to anything with a lie. And he, Martha Corey, and Rebecca Nurse are executed. They die as they recite the Lord's Prayer. And as I cry. Predictably. <laughs> so, first impressions. I was in a community theater production of The Crucible back in 2005. Nerd. I, I was Mercy Lewis, and we watched this movie at a cast party. I had the same opinion about it as I do now. It's a perfectly serviceable, standard historical movie from the 1990s, which was like the golden era of historical films. What a time to be alive. So, decent acting, but there's nothing really special about the film work. 
So we read the play in my 10th grade English class with possibly my all-time least favorite teacher. Hi, Mrs. O'Keefe. Why were you so hateful? <laughs> and then we watched the movie in class as a sub-day activity. And I mostly remember that in the least surprising turn of events ever, the 15-year-old boys in my class did not really deal well with the mature themes in this story. <laughs> but I actually hadn't seen it since then and didn't remember nearly as much of it as I thought, or really any of it except the scene where Abigail and Daniel Day-Lewis are talking intensely by the barn at the beginning. <laughs> talking about their That's fear, it. when anyone can hear them. I know, right? Worst <laughs> plotters ever. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. Okay. Uh, the general plot of The Crucible is based off of the Salem Witch Trials, but it- Really? <sighs> no. It differs in a few crucial ways. Arthur Miller, the guy who wrote it, was deliberately using the trials as an allegory for the McCarthyite Red Scare of the 1950s. It also turns out that he played fast and loose with some crucial facts, not just random background information, or condensing two characters into one. First of all, John Proctor and Abigail Williams did not have an affair. She was like 12, and he was ancient. I'm a little bit defensive because John Proctor was a cousin of my ninth great grandfather or whatever, but still. While creating a fictional affair for the purposes of a good story isn't bad per se, in a New Yorker article, Miller says that upon looking at the historical record, he totally knew she'd gotten fired as a servant because she'd been sleeping with him. And he continued to buckle down on the idea that Abigail didn't want to accuse her former boss and lover in later writings about the play even though Abigail had never actually been a servant for them. It's well known that all actual historians make their decisions just based on how they feel looking at the text. <laughs> Thanks to the records of the Salem Witch Hunt Project for this revelation, we'll post a link to their work on our website so you can see even more of what got changed for the story. And, oh, in the movie, we see Giles Corey get pressed to death with rocks because he refuses to stand trial. A widely repeated explanation for his refusal was that his property would go to the government if he were convicted. However, the University of Virginia's Salem Witch Trials Documentary Archives and Transcription Project states that both English and Massachusetts law didn't actually work that way. The project's research also says that while one local official did illegally seize property of some of the accused witches, Corey had already transferred his property to his sons-in-law, so this wasn't even an issue at this point. A far-sighted gentleman. <laughs> I sat up really straight and kind of yelled during the opening credits because I was totally unaware that Paul Schofield was in this movie. He plays Chief Judge Danforth, and the last time I saw this movie, I was still a decade or so away from discovering one of my all-time favorite films, A Man for All Seasons, in which Schofield plays Sir Thomas More. The reason I got so excited and bring it up here is not just because it's the same actor appearing in two different historical films, but because I think the two films, both of which started as plays, actually address some really similar themes in ways that I hadn't thought about previously. John Proctor really strikes me as a corollary to Thomas More. Both men try to choose a middle path in the great religious controversy of their day. Proctor wants to stay well out of the witch panic, but he still knows that it's all wrong and all a sham. More disagreed with Henry VIII's decision to divorce Catherine of Aragon, and even more with the decision to declare himself supreme head of an English church, but he initially hopes that keeping silent will save him. Both films make an eloquent statement about the rule of law and how fragile it can be when people choose to push up against its boundaries. Both men are urged by family and friends to take false oaths or give false confessions to try to save themselves. Ultimately, both More and Proctor are forced into a reckoning. 
They both express the belief that seeking martyrdom would be wrong, but Proctor famously shouts when ordered to sign his name to a false public confession, because it is my name! My name! A line for which me really mirrors a quote from Moore in A Man for All Seasons. When a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his hands like water, and if he opens his fingers then, he needn't hope to find himself again. The similarities between those two thoughts and between their stories are really striking to me, all the more so because really the two men are separated in time only by about 150 years. Which seems so weird. It feels like two completely different worlds. Yep. But let's talk about one of the really crucial characters, Tichaba. She's the one who supposedly brings about all this distress to the girls, but scholars don't really know that much about her, other than she was an enslaved woman who might have come from Barbados with Reverend Paris, and Smithsonian Magazine says that she might actually have been a South American Indian who was captured and taken to Barbados originally. The article explains that over time, she began to be portrayed as a black woman because the idea of a stereotypical black voodoo practitioner cooking some sort of potion over the flames seemed more exciting and titillating than her real-life confession that just admits to the devil appearing to her and demanding that she hurt the kids. Why was that all? No. No biggie. No big deal. All the things that she mentioned in reference to the devil during the confession are all tied to Old English notions of witchcraft. Nothing from non-European cultures gets mentioned at all. What else we do know is she was the first to confess and the last suspected witch to be freed. Gosh, I wonder why that is. <laughs> I have no idea. After her trial, mystery. After her trial, in which she didn't get executed because of her confession, she left Massachusetts, as well as the historic narrative. What really caused the trials and the Salem witch panic? There are a lot of theories about what caused the town of Salem to lose its collective and ever-loving mind, and like much of the rest of history, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle of all of them. The Massachusetts Bay Colony had certainly seen witch trials before Salem, but the sheer scale of this particular panic, with 200 people arrested, which is about 10% of the town of Salem at that time, 30 people convicted and 20 people executed, it was unique. There were certainly local issues at play. The town of Salem was already known to be unusually quarrelsome, with fights and feuds about property lines and grazing rights and church privileges... From a sociological perspective, there is the profound and understandable anxiety that rises from being a very small group of people clinging to the end of a very large and mysterious landmass. There's obviously a religious context, with a strong belief in the occult and witchcraft, undergirded by the belief that women were inherently more susceptible to temptation and sin, and of course, almost 80% of those who were accused were women. There have also been attempts over the years at a medical explanation, especially focusing on the group of girls who started the whole, who started the whole episode, and who did display what seemed to be some genuine symptoms of hysteria and psychosis. One psychologist has suggested that the girls may have been suffering from conversion disorder, a mental condition in which the brain converts extreme psychological stress into physical symptoms like paralysis or seizures. Another theory put forward in the 1970s posits that the warm, damp weather during the 1691 growing season led to an outbreak of a particular fungus that grows on rye and other cereal grains, and which produces a byproduct that is chemically similar to LSD. <laughs> and causes convulsions, vomiting, crawling sensations on the skin, and hallucinations. 
The theory posits that the girls would have been eating bread baked by the infected that they began accusing their neighbors of attacking them via witchcraft. And while later scientists have challenged this theory, it remains an intriguing possibility. Over the decades, other suggestions as to a physical cause for what the girls may or may not have experienced have included encephalitis, epilepsy, and Lyme's disease. Now, my dad had Lyme's disease when I was in high school, and he did not accuse any of us of witchcraft, but that remains to be seen. I saw Goody Jet eating infected bread. While Abigail is trying to frighten the girls into silence, she mentions that I saw Indians smash my parents' heads upon their pillows. By 1692, many of the Massachusetts Puritans were afraid of attacks from Native Americans. English violations of treaties with the local tribes had led to King Philip's war in the 1670s. Oh, look, it's the consequences of my actions. Some of the people in Salem had fled what is now Maine because of this war, and so what Abigail says is a reference to this. And there were further attacks on Maine settlements by combined French and tribal forces, such as the Battle of Falmouth in 1690 and the Candlemas Massacre of 1692, which happened right about the time that the trials get started. This fear also apparently worked its way into the trials. George Burroughs, one of the victims of the trials, had come under suspicion for having a dark complexion, suggesting that he was part Indian and escaping a number of attacks unharmed, which some people thought meant that he was being protected by the tribes. The big picture of this episode, why we're including it in spooky October, it's all about the impact that the trials had on American folklore. The Salem Witch Trials loom large in the American imagination, and they still haunt us today. They've worked their way into all sorts of pop culture references, such as the play-slash-movie we're talking about right now, and also the millennial cult favorite, Hocus Pocus. Which I hate. Don't at me. I want to find out more, but we'll talk about this later. Okay. They're seen as this great, integral part of American folklore. And this is thanks to 19th century romantic writers that you might remember from 11th grade American lit class, like Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, John Greenleaf Whittier, and our French question mark of the podcast, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and a bunch of others who wrote poems, plays, stories, and books all about different people involved in the trials, as well as other witch trials and accusations from New England. Hawthorne, as we mentioned in our In the Heart of the Sea episode, is descended from one of the more notorious witch trial judges, John Hathorne. And supposedly Nathan added the W to his last name to distance himself from the family's dark past. Nobody cares, buddy. Washington Irving's story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, even though it's very firmly rooted in old Dutch New York history and legends, has Ichabod Crane be from the Puritan and witch-fearing New England, and one of the books he's always reading in the tale is Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, and Cotton Mather was involved in the trials, he's just not in the play. Some of these writers were deliberate in picking Salem, because they're trying to build up a body of literature about American history that could rival British literature. Salem the town, however, didn't embrace its connection until relatively recently. Firstly, most of the events that inspired the trials occurred out in Salem Village, which is now Danvers, Massachusetts. Additionally, the town part of Salem was primarily tied to its maritime economic activities, and it wasn't until the late 1890s that a few businesses used the trials and the witch motif for marketing. The crucible helped rekindle interest in the trials, and around the 60s and 70s, the city went all in on branding itself as Witch City, even though there's only one building still standing in the town proper that has any direct ties to the trials. It's called the Witch House. Clever. 
<laughs> so there's even a lineage society, a corollary to more famous ones like Daughters of the American Revolution, the Associated Daughters of Early American Witches. Applicants for membership have to prove that they're a direct descendant of someone who was accused or tried or convicted or executed for witchcraft in colonial America prior to December 31st, 1699. If your ancestor was executed on January 1st, 1700, I guess you are SOL. But the society was formed in 1985 at Washington, D.C.'s famed Mayflower Hotel. See what they did there. Oh, I just caught that. Was that the last one to catch that? Anyway, it's a registered 501c3 nonprofit. They have a badge and a newsletter, both called the Black Swan. They have a whole slate of officers, including a chaplain and a parliamentarian. And like all of us, their annual conference got canceled this year by COVID. The society provides a list of approved ancestors, but it also invites people who can prove new ancestors through church or court records to apply. Their goal is ultimately similar to other lineage societies, to encourage awareness of and engagement with a particular area of the past. So now the big question. How many stereotypical white pilgrim quiffs are we awarding to the Crucible? So I'm assigning this movie to stereotypical pilgrim white quiffs for completely petty reasons. And that's a first for you. No doubt. Maybe it's because I've read and seen the play numerous times, and I've been stuck for a lot of time in rehearsal and performance for this, but it's going to take more than what basically feels like it could be any TV movie to make me interested. I just don't think it made the jump from the stage to the screen that well, in terms of pacing and visual focus. The movie does get points for feeling near Salem, but at two hours long, and just kind of boring... My husband, however, gave it 3.5, specifically because he's related to almost all the characters because his mom's family is from that area. We'll be staging a trial in Laura's living room when we're done taping. (laughs) So I thought the atmosphere and historical setting were pretty decently done, but that the movie also took a really heavy-handed and not particularly nuanced view of its topic and characters. The script pretty much takes the perspective that the only possible cause for everything that's happening are the evil machinations of a bunch of power-mad little brats led by a scheming harlot, which in its way feels as misogynistic as the original witch panic itself. So, on that basis, I am awarding this movie just to stereotypical Pilgrim White Quaffs as well. Finally, a few sundry other notes. I have to throw in my very favorite piece of political trivia, which I honestly just try to shoehorn into conversations as often as humanly possible. We think of witch trials as a Massachusetts thing, but they took place throughout the colonies. One famous case was right here in Virginia, where we live. In the area of Virginia Beach, when local spinster and noted grumpy person Grace Sherwood was accused, tried, and jailed for about a decade. She was nicknamed the Witch of Pungo, and Witch Duck Bay and Witch Duck Road in the Virginia Beach area are still named for her ordeal. Anyway, she eventually gets out of prison, but all her property has been taken, and it's not great for her. According to the fine folks at Colonial Williamsburg, she went on to haunt their courtroom, where her trial was conducted for quite a few years. It is spooky October. (laughs) Finally, in 2006, then-Virginia Governor Tim Kaine, who would go on to be a U.S. Senator and Vice Presidential Candidate, signed an unofficial posthumous pardon for the Witch of Pungo, which was really very nice of him, but is still funny. He is soft on witches. Arthur Miller, the playwright, actually got to hang out on the set of this movie, and he made friends with Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis made more than friends with Miller's daughter, Rebecca, and they got married in 1996. 
Filming took place on Hogs Island, also called Choate Island, which is about a 30-minute drive away from Salem. Massachusetts Bay Colony settlers were on the island as early as 1630, so it's a pretty inspired place to film. Daniel Day-Lewis basically went full Daniel Day-Lewis method acting and camped out there to get into character. From a first glance, the costuming looks fairly accurate. A farming community would be wearing clothing suitable for all sorts of errands and husbandry, and the actors are generally clothed in suitable gear for farming. However, most people wouldn't wear the stereotypical pilgrim outfit for church. Only clergy, politicians, and other prominent figures had access to black clothing because the dye for a true black was so costly. Colors easier to come by included red, yellow, and green, like we do see a lot of the characters wear during their normal workday. Additionally, the clothing on the whole does look closer to early 1600s clothing than what was fashionable in Europe by the 1690s. You have a literally Puritan crowd, many of whom are relatively impoverished and living out in the wilderness, so they're not going to keep up with all the craziest trends. But clothing styles don't remain static after they stepped off the boat in 1620, 70 years prior to the trials. Also, there are soldiers wearing armor that looks pretty outdated, closer to the early 1600s than what England would have had for military uniforms in 1692. They may not have had access to all the latest gear, but again, I think what we generally think of Puritans wearing is frozen to their arrival in America, and probably because we see them as stodgy and resistant to change, and we can use this as a metaphor for how they live their lives. I do like that Abigail's dresses have sleeves that detach from the bodice, which is how a lot of clothing was pieced together back then, especially for those who had to make do with what they had. My primary thought about the costuming for the entire movie is that I do not understand why John Proctor could not button his shirt properly. <laughs> it is open to his belly button in every scene, which probably would have actually gotten him clapped in the stocks for indecency. But it's probably why Abigail Williams was so in love with him, and right? how did that work out for him? <laughs> so to learn more about witchcraft accusations in colonial America, check out Carol F. Carlson's book, The Devil in the Shape of a Woman, Witchcraft in Colonial New England. If you're interested in other people who ran afoul of Puritan society, I highly recommend the biography American Jezebel, The Uncommon Life of Anne Hutchinson, which is about the fascinating woman who, finding herself expelled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony for heresy and sedition, helped co-found the colony of Rhode Island. Finally, I wanted to throw in a fun personal note. I mentioned that my mother-in-law was from the area, so her best friend growing up lived in Reverend Hale's house in Beverly in a more modern wing because her parents were the caretakers. So my mother-in-law was there all the time for sleepovers and whatnot, and because protocol for treating historic spaces was not what it is now, they basically could go all over the property whenever and wherever they wanted. So I would like to extend my apologies 60 years later to the Beverly Historical Society. Probably just answered a lot of questions they might have had there. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for our second episode of Spooky October. Are you going to do that every time? Yes. Oh, good. So the Crucible may take some license with the historical record, but next week we are tackling a very serious, mm -hmm. totally truthful, 100% mm -hmm. accurate historical epic. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Thanks for listening to Costume Drama Rewind. If I could stop it. <laughs>